As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Thank you for listening to the programme that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we dive into this week's show, I want to let you know about a very exciting competition. To celebrate 10 years since the release of Professor Alistair McGrath's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis A Life, we are giving away 15 copies, one for each chapter of the book, courtesy of the publisher Hodder Faith. To be in with a chance to win, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. This link will be included in the show notes, but here it is one more time. premierunbelievable.com slash book. But now for today's show. This is the sixth episode in our series on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis. And our focus here is on his conversion to Christianity. Alistair, we're going to be talking a bit about C.S. Lewis's journey towards faith. And what role did literature have in his journey, do you think? I think it had a major role. And let me try and tease out what I think that the components of this are. One of them is Lewis's realisation, even in his childhood days, that literature was kind of way able to open doors. In other words, able to help you envision other worlds and step into them. And of course, Lewis was an atheist at this point, but he had these this deep sense, this intuition that that the world offered to him by pure reason was a very dull and incomplete world. And the literature he was reading, above all, people like George Herbert, was speaking to him of, of a, a greater vision of reality, which seemed tantalizingly to hover just beyond his grasp. So that's, that's the first point to make. The second, of course, is that he was reading writers who were Christians. Um, and I've mentioned George Herbert, there are many others, but what they were doing was really forcing Lewis to rethink things. In effect, making him realize that Christianity offered a much richer and more satisfying vision of reality than he had realized. And at several points in um, Surprised by Joy, in which he talks about his return to Christianity, um, Lewis will talk about writers like um, George Herbert or Dante as, in effect, offering him something much richer and more satisfying than um, some more recent writers. Um, and again, I think that's important because literature here is creating a sense of dissatisfaction with what Lewis has, and at the same time offering him a bigger vision of what he might have. So I think we need to say that, in effect, literature was playing a major role in moving Lewis towards rethinking his atheism. 
Well, I think you see that, don't you, in Surprised by Joy, when Lewis says a young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. There are traps everywhere. I mean, that's quite a statement, isn't it? It's quite a statement. But when you read Lewis's kind of his own conversion, you be able to say, hey, look, he read G.K. Chesterton. He suddenly made Lewis realise the Christian view of history makes sense. Or again, um, George Herbert, his, his depiction of human nature, it's so much more realistic and the rather shallow view you find in other people. So again, you know, Lewis is really making it clear to his readers that people I have read have kind of way opened my eyes and my mind and my imagination to a faith that I don't share at the moment, but I can see there is something there. But of course, Lewis was also actually becoming rather dissatisfied with atheism. And as I read Lewis's writings of the um, mid-1920s, I mean, why, why I see really is someone who's saying, well, you know, atheism, I think it's probably right, but it's awfully dull, you know, and just beginning to wonder if there might be alternatives. So we, there is somebody who is receptive towards a bigger vision of reality. And I suppose that's where imagination plays quite a key part for Lewis, is it? I think it is. Lewis was aware that his reason was offering him a rather dull, a rather bleak account of reality, was the imagination saying there is so much more there to discover. It's just beyond your reach, but you can stretch out and find it. And Lewis at one point in Surprised by Joy does talk about this dialectic between a purely rational world, which was what he thought what he thought was all you could get, and this this richer vision, this many islanded sea of poetry and myth, I think he calls it, which was wonderful, but it couldn't be there, could it? And then beginning to realise actually maybe it is. I mean, he obviously didn't lose that rational side of the faith. If you read Mere Christianity, it's clear that he sees reason as an important thing. How did he kind of hold the two in tension, reason and imagination? Because he's quite a unique character in the way that he manages to hold the two together, isn't he? He is. I think it's helpful to begin by thinking about Lewis on reason. I think Lewis initially allowed reason to determine what he believed. In other words, uh, reality is limited to what reason is able to prove. But then we begin to find Lewis, in effect, saying, no, 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 reason is about um, things making sense. In other words, it's about finding a way of looking at the world which um, is not determined by reason, but when, when reason looks, it says, hey, yeah, that, that makes some sense. And it's imagination that's the driver for Lewis. That, in effect, he, he, he has this view that in some way we are made with this imaginative capacity to recognize and enter bigger visions of reality. So what we find in Lewis um, from uh, the late 1930s onwards really is this very strong sense that Christianity gives us a better way of imagining our world which makes rational sense, both in the sense of giving us a deeper understanding of our world, but also something that can be defended by argumentation. And that's what, exactly what we find in mere Christianity, the, the interplay of um, reason and the imagination. I, I would call it sort of um, enriched vision of reason or something like that to try and capture the fact that Lewis does not stop being a rational person, but nevertheless, um, in effect, is able to enhance his rationality by an appeal to the imagination. And the result is Lewis has a very wide readership embracing those who both 
like reasoning and those who think the imagination is really important. And so do you think for Lewis, it was both reason and imagination that played an important part in his conversion? Or do you think there was one over and above the other? It's hard to say. I, th I think they're both involved. Um, I've often tried to um, kind of way allocate percentages to each of them. But I think <laughs> it's, uh, it doesn't really work like that. I think what you can say is that Lewis was aware um, that the deep sense of emptiness he so often experienced, which he calls joy, um, is not something that is simply bad news. You can't fulfill yourself, but it's good news because it's saying you cannot sort this out by yourself. But the good news is there is something that you can apprehend, which once you've apprehended it, in effect fulfills you. And he talks about God shooting arrows of joy to create the sense of emptiness and longing for something that really satisfies. And of course, that is what God does when God is discovered and embraced. And Lewis came to believe in God before he sort of became specifically a Christian. Um, so what was the means by which his kind of general theism came about? And then I'm aware this is a huge question, but the, what then moved him from that kind of general theism towards towards Christianity specifically? Well, that's right. I mean, there are two stages in Lewis's conversion. One is regaining a belief in God. And the second is shifting to a belief in Christianity. And there are different stages. The first stage, um, Lewis says, took place in Trinity term 1929. I think it happened in Trinity term 1930, but don't worry about that. <laughs> uh, and that really is, in effect, this God idea makes sense. And, and it's very, very clear that Lewis is saying that um, belief in God, I'm emphasizing the word God because Jesus doesn't really come into this very much, um, in effect, makes sense of things. And also, it accounts for the fact that I have this sense that reality was kind of way imposing on me. Lewis is very careful to say it wasn't that I wanted to discover God. It was rather that God drew near to me and imposed himself upon me. There's no question of this being a wish fulfillment. If anything, Lewis was very clear he didn't want this to happen. He says that the, this idea that we want to find God is a bit like saying that, you know, the mouse wants to find the cat. You know, he's very clear this is not the way it was. So stage one is a recovery of belief in God. And then we have the second stage. And in my view, the second stage is the much more important and interesting, which is the rediscovery of why Christ is at the center of the Christian faith. And the person who helped them to make that connection was, of course, J.R.R. Tolkien. We'll get to that in a minute. But just going back to what is you know, sort of Lewis's upbringing in um, in Protestant Ireland, I mean, would how what would his faith have looked like as a child? Do, do you think he would have had a genuine faith or was it kind of nominal faith that he inherited from his parents? What would that have looked like? Lewis does suggest he had some kind of childhood faith. And as I read Lewis, this this this, this makes me think it was unarticulated, that it was a sort of um, not so much a carefully reasoned thing, but rather a sort of basic sense. There's a God out there and I can trust that God. Um, and his understanding of Christianity would simply have been creedal, that in effect it was it was statements of belief, which don't appear to have made any really deep connections. So there wasn't anything of great depth there. And the problem is, if your faith is not of great depth, um, then it just 
withers over time. And that's what seemed to have happened to Lewis. Um, when he went to school in England, I think we can safely say that any faith Lewis had um, simply faded away altogether. And you mentioned earlier that um, Lewis traditionally dates his conversion in Trinity term 1929, um, but you think it's a year later. Obviously, as you say, it's not necessarily important, but it is quite interesting. Why do you think that it's likely to have been a year later than Lewis himself suggests? Well, it's a good question. I, again, I may be wrong, but there are a number of very important pointers. One is that a lot of the dates that Lewis gives um, in Surprise by Joy are simply out, out by sometimes as much as a year. And um, so Lewis is notoriously unreliable about dates. And in fact, his brother once <laughs> declared publicly that, 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 that C.S. Lewis was just useless when it came to dates. Secondly, I think this is quite an important point. Um, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, I read all of Lewis's writings in the order in which they were written. And I remember coming to the end of 1929 thinking, well, isn't something meant to have happened during 1929? Mm. But there's no sign of it. The tone of his writing is unchanged. In 1930, all of that changes. You know, he, he, it's clearly something has happened. So I think that, that change in tone is very, very clear. But also, uh, Lewis was quite clear, there's a marker here, that when I rediscovered God, I expressed that in two ways. Number one, I started going to my local church. We don't know when that happened. There's no record. And number two, I started going to chapel at Morden College. I had not done that up to this point. And we know from some um, conversations Lewis had with other people that Lewis, that the people remember Lewis starting to go into chapel. Lewis wrote to Arthur Greaves in October 1930 saying, I've started going to chapel. It's a new development. That points to, because chapel didn't happen during um, July, August, September, that means Lewis's conversion probably happened in Trinity term 1930. But hey, the key point I want to make is this doesn't uh, make a huge amount of difference. I mean, the key thing is Lewis was converted and that um, it's a real conversion and that from that base, he's able to move ahead with this remarkable uh, output of a very important literary works. Uh, one of the things that Lewis says in um, Surprised by Joy is that he has he had no idea that there had ever been or ever would be any connection between God and joy. I mean, why does he say this and, and why does that change so much when he begins to discover that, that actually there is a connection between God and joy? I think um, there, it's to do with Lewis's idea of what Christian belief is. And at this stage, Lewis tends to think of Christian belief propositionally. He needed someone to tell him that the primary emphasis of Christianity is a story that is told that captures the imagination. Um, and from that, you develop doctrines. Lewis thought doctrine was primary at this earlier stage. So in many ways, Lewis just saying, well, the Christianity is about these beliefs. Um, what, what's that got to do with joy, with um, wonder? And then, of course, um, Lewis begins to realize that um, uh, Christianity is about a God who, in effect, does certain things that utterly transform us, including meeting this deep sense of emptiness that's there in human nature. So those begin to realize that this sense of emptiness, unfulfillment, dissatisfaction within him is actually an indicator of what he is missing and that God is the only one who can fill that gap. So it's a bit like Pascal's discussion of this God-shaped gap or abyss within us. So I think Lewis's realization of that um, 
really solidifies after his recovery of belief in God. Um, but it doesn't by itself take him to rediscovering belief in Christ. Well, we've touched on this quite a lot already, but an interaction with J.R.R. Tolkien seems to have been instrumental in his final move towards uh, Lewis's final move towards Christianity. Do we know what happened during this long night talk? Well, we do. Um, and happily, um, it's all to do with Arthur Greaves. And um, because Lewis and Arthur Greaves, you know, um, kept up a correspondence. And Lewis wrote two letters to Arthur Greaves after this conversation. One was very brief, saying, hey, I've just, I just had a, a, an illumination. I can suddenly see what this is all about. And then, uh, I think two weeks later, a very long, detailed letter, which goes far beyond what we find in uh, Surprised by Joy, saying, telling us precisely what Tolkien and Lewis talked about and why it changed Lewis's mind completely. So let's, let's try and imagine this. If you know more than college, you'll know it's right next to the river in Oxford River Charwell. And it has a beautiful circular walk, some of which runs by the river. And Lewis and Tolkien and their friend Hugo Dyson walked around this path a lot on a Saturday evening in 9, September 1931, talking about myth. What I mean by myth, let's be quite clear, is not something that was invented or anything like that. It's about stories that are able to capture the imagination and set out a worldview. And what Tolkien in particular brought out was that Christianity is like a myth. It's a story that captures your imagination and allows you to build a vision of reality. But Tolkien then said, there's another thing. This is a true myth, which explains every other myth. In other words, it has the form of a myth, but it's real, it's right, it's true. And what Christian doctrine is, is intellectual reflection on this story. So the story comes first, then doctrine. And this transformed it. Lewis suddenly said, I get it, and tells Arthur, uh, grieves in great detail what he found in this. And it, it's obvious it's changed him completely. And it's a, a wonderful letter. Um, and it's interesting and surprised by joy. Um, Lewis talks about Tolkien helping him over the final um, style, you know, the, the, the little steps over a fence. Um, but in the letter, it's absolutely clear Tolkien has been crucial to Lewis's conversion to Christianity but also in giving Lewis a vision of how stories can serve an apologetic purpose. So Tolkien is really, really significant. And of course, with this rediscovery of the role of Christ as the centerpiece of the story that is being told, Lewis can suddenly see why Christ is right at the heart of the Christian faith. And what's interesting is that Lewis doesn't actually refer to the Bible all that much in his writings, but the passage that crops up quite a lot is the prologue to John's Gospel, the first 14 verses of that Gospel, actually first 18 verses of that Gospel, in which he talks about Christ coming into the world, the incarnation, and enlightening the world. And Lewis sees this as a paradigmatic statement of the central insight that this is the action of God, the story of this action of God in Christ. 
And once you grasp that story, everything radiates outwards from it, which is why Christmas is such an important event in mm. C.S. Lewis's um, liturgical calendar. So how did Tolkien's way of thinking uh, about myth and about its kind of Christianity being a true myth impact the way that Lewis saw pagan religions or other myths? Well, that's a really good question because Lewis um, loved pagan myths and he'd converted to Christianity, um, rediscovering belief in God, and obviously was wondering if this new allegiance towards God would require him to give up certain things that he was now doing, including his love for pagan myth. J.R.R. Tolkien's insight said to Lewis, these pagan myths are anticipations of the Christian gospel. And Lewis began to realize suddenly that actually this meant he could value these and say, see them as stepping stones along the way to Christianity and also possibilities of retelling pagan myths apologetically to help people who were there move into Christian territory. So it was an enormously important um, uh, insight because Lewis realized that the great myths he loved in ancient Greece and the Nordic world could be part of his inheritance. And also he could use them in what he was beginning to see as his possible future, which was an atheist who became a Christian and would be able to explain to other atheists why he had shifted to belief in Christianity. And how, how did Tolkien help Lewis to connect reason and imagination together? Because again, that seemed to be quite a key thing for Lewis, didn't it? It was very key. And I, I think that one of the things that um, Tolkien helped Lewis to see is that we don't, we shouldn't think of reason and imagination as watertight compartments that did not talk to each other or even even worse that contradicted each other rather he saw if you like the christian idea of being created in god's image as giving you an intellectual framework that brought together reason and imagination and for tolkien the image of god is really about kind of way giving us an imaginative template which means that the stories we tell are kind of recollections or retellings of the story of God. And um, actually, Tolkien expressed this in a poem called Mythopoeia, The Making of Myth, um, which he seems to have dedicated to someone who initially thought myths were awful. And it's dedicated to a certain person with the initials C.S.L. I wonder who that was. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis seems to have had some significant moments in his faith journey during actual journeys. And one such journey was on the way to Whipsonade Zoo, wasn't it? Would you share just a little bit about what happened on this journey? It's, that's quite right. I mean, Lewis very often found that um, a journey in which he was thinking about something else. In other words, he, he, was, he was not driving, he was being driven. Um, it kind of let, just let him sort of um, relax and, and play with ideas. And certainly one of these moments happened on a journey to Whipsnet Zoo. We don't know the full details. We don't actually even know the date for certain, although it was after 1931. And um, what happened was that it was as if Lewis had thrown a lot of intellectual pieces in the air, wondering how on earth they connected. And somehow everything fell into place on that journey. 
and Lewis suddenly realised how the idea of the divinity of Christ brought everything together. So for me, that's the final stage of Lewis's conversion to Christianity, seeing how everything fitted together. But I want us to emphasise that idea of throwing up pieces into the air and then finding, for some reason, that they come down to earth but in a way that's connected. Because what Lewis is saying is Christianity is the big picture, if you like, um, a way of bringing together things that are otherwise disconnected and disorganized into a coherent whole. And in many ways, Lewis's crystallization of these insights, the realization that the idea of incarnation brings all of these things together into a coherent uh, whole is integral to Lewis's vision of Christianity. Christianity is about making ourselves and our world whole. It gives us this vision of Christianity that brings everything together. And for Lewis, that's really important. And actually, it's a central theme in Lewis's Christian apologetics. I mean, obviously, Lewis got to a point where he saw Christianity as a good thing, full of joy, all of that. But he does initially describe his conversion, at least to theism, as um, he talks about being the most reluctant convert. Why do you think there is that reluctance in Lewis's yeah, conversion? Because for, for most people, you know, becoming a Christian is, is kind of a positive thing. But he seems to do it almost against his better wishes, doesn't he? Well, Lewis... Um repeatedly makes the point he wants to be his own person. He does not want to be subservient to someone else. And in Surprised by Joy, he talks quite a lot about God as the great interferer, someone who would, in effect, um, make him do things he didn't want to do. Um, and Lewis, therefore, wants to resist this. He wants to stay in control. And in Surprised by Joy, the narrative is really of Lewis realizing he is being mastered. He doesn't want it to happen, but it is happening. He's encountered something whose presence, whose, um, whose majesty, whose glory is something he cannot resist, even though his unconverted reason says, you don't want to do this. So if you like, we're seeing a struggle between the unconverted Lewis who wants to remain independent and an encounter with God which is going to transform Lewis, and Lewis doesn't want to be transformed. Then transformation happens. And that is really when things get very exciting. <laughs> Do we know anything about Warney's faith? Because there's a sense, isn't there, in which they both begin to go to church at a similar time. Do, I mean, do we know what's, what happened in Warney's? We don't know very much, but what we do know is that Warney also appears to have come back to faith. Now, in Warney's case, it was while he was um, serving in the British Army in China. And uh, from what we know, Warney went to visit a little church in China and had some kind of experience there which spoke to him of God's presence and was the beginning of his conversion. What's interesting is that both Lewis and his brother were converted around the same time, unknown to each other for some time. So something's going on. Did they not communicate to each other then? Oh, they did eventually, but um, I mean, this was a, communications between China and England were not good in those days. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to be exploring much more of this over the next few episodes. But what impact did Lewis's faith have on his life, his relationships and his writing? I'm aware that's a huge question. <laughs> 
Well, it changed Lewis. I mean, Lewis himself says that one of the things that his conversion um, changed in his life was his habit of keeping a diary. Um, as a Lewis scholar, I wish he'd kept keeping the diary because it made my job as a biographer much easier. But um, Lewis says, look, it's, it's, it's self-absorbing. It, 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 it's, it's, it's not something I feel I need to do anymore. I'm, what does my life matter? I want to get on with writing other things. So if you like, instead of writing about himself in his diary, Lewis began to write the kind of works, um, beginning, of course, with um, uh, The Pilgrim's Regress, which he wrote uh, during his time back in Belfast with Arthur Greaves. Um, and that's a wonderful book. But he began to shift from writing about himself to writing about God, but using the techniques and insights he had gained through his conversion. And what about in Lewis's relationships? Because obviously people like Warney had also come to faith, but people like Mrs. Moore still remained an atheist from what we know up until her death. So would would the dynamic have changed now that Lewis had come to faith? Well, the dynamics of various relationships changed. I mean, Lewis became much closer to Tolkien. That was very, very clear. They had much more to talk about now. But Lewis's relationship with Mrs. Moore um, was affected by this because Mrs. Moore made it quite clear she was not interested in this. Now, this, this may seem um, not a major point, but it is actually quite significant because later in his life, um, Lewis would say that his inability to move Mrs. Moore towards faith really called his own confidence in his ability as an apologist into question. So if you like, Lewis was unsettled by Mrs. Moore because he felt that the people closest to him who he tried to convert didn't. And that meant not that the gospel was inadequate, but that he was inadequate. So I think there's a serious issue there. Um, but uh, basically, um, he and his brother got on splendidly. And in fact, um, as you will know, um, when the Inklings began to originate, um, the three original members were Lewis, his brother, and J.R.R. Tolkien. In other words, the guys who kind of way had all been there in the early 1930s and then it began to expand subsequently. Well, we're going to talk a lot more about the Inklings, but just finally, as we finish this episode, do you think there was a sense in which his conversion towards Christianity perhaps lost him some respect or authority among the sort of scholars in Oxford? I think People were astonished by Lewis's conversion. Um, we have a record of this from an American philosopher, Paul Elmer Moore, who visited Oxford around the time and um, spent some time at Malden and records that um, people were talking to him about Lewis's conversion and the fact he was now going to chapel, which they saw as being astonishing. So I think that um, it was a cause for discussion and perhaps almost scandal. <laughs> Here's this guy who suddenly changed radically. What's this all about? So certainly it was being noticed. And um, Lewis, I think, began to lose friends at Oxford as a result of this. But actually, really, really, it became difficult only in the late 1940s when people felt that his his popular writings as a Christian were interfering with his role as a scholar. He ought to be writing scholarly works rather than stuff like... Um, you know, the kind of stuff he was coming out with, like uh, screw tape letters. You know, people just felt this wasn't really appropriate. But yes, Lewis's change was noticed. And um, for a lot of people, it was surprising, even scandalous. Alistair, thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson, and Professor Alistair McGrath. And don't forget, we're giving you the opportunity to get a free copy of Alistair's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life. To be in with a chance to win, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. That's premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book. Thank you for listening and see you next time where we'll be hearing more from Alistair on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis.